Well, good morning, friends. I'm Pastor Brandon. Uh, as we look together at Second Peter, before we dive in, I just want to uh, invite you uh, to consider joining me for the Abide CR conference that's coming up in the middle of February. Some of you have heard of this. Some of you have attended before. But it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for uh, churches from around the Cedar Rapids area, gospel preaching churches coming together to just rest in our Lord Jesus. It's a very slow-paced conference, um, and uh, I'm excited to participate again. Wanted to bring it to your attention this morning because the early bird rate uh, goes up after tomorrow. So if you are thinking of going, this is the time to register for it. Uh, but it's a really wonderful time, and I hope you can join me for it. Um, If you're new to Stonebridge, uh, you should know that our usual rhythm when we gather on Sunday mornings is to work through books of the Bible together. So most recently, we've been making our way through the Gospel of John. We're going to be back in John's Gospel in February for the final stretch, chapters 18 to 21. Uh, But for the month of January, uh, we want to stop and consider why we spend so much time in the Bible together as a church, Uh, why the Bible is so central to who we are and to all that we do. Uh, If you just stop and think about it, uh, the preaching of the Bible is the centerpiece of our gathered worship every single Sunday. The songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray are all shaped by the Bible. Uh, We teach it in our classes, we discuss it in our groups, It's the centerpiece of any uh, discipleship relationships that we might have or pastoral counsel that we might give. It guides our leaders. It sets our doctrine and our beliefs. Literally everything revolves around Scripture. That's our goal, right? It, it, It plays a central role in the life of Stonebridge Church. And so because of that, it's worthwhile every now and then to stop and ask, why? Or or to remind ourselves why. Why is the Word of God so important, so central? What what should we believe about the Bible? What is it? Uh, Is it true? What does it tell us about itself? Is the Bible still relevant today? Why, Why? What's the big deal with Scripture? How should it impact our lives, our relationships, our, our ministries, and And what's at stake if we neglect this book, or if we replace it, or even if we keep it around but subject it to something else, put something else above it? These are good questions for us to wrestle with and remind ourselves about on occasion, Um, because the reality is what you believe about the Bible literally shapes everything about your life, which sounds kind of like hyperbole, but this is not an exaggeration. What you believe about this book shapes everything about your life. Is this book the Word of God, or is it merely a Word of God among others, or does it merely contain the Word of God? It's somewhere in there, but you got to go digging, or is it something else altogether? How you answer that question determines, it shapes your your view of of humanity, who we are, why we're here, 
It shapes your views of morality, what is right and wrong, how are we supposed to live. It shapes your view of philosophy, how we think, how we, what we believe about truth. It shapes our, our views of society, how we relate to each other, how certain institutions are supposed to work, like marriage and family and government and vocation. Because ultimately, what you believe about this book is inextricably linked to what you believe about God. And what you believe about God shapes everything about you. And if you cannot divorce what you believe about God from what you believe about this book, that's a pretty important question to wrestle with. It literally shapes everything about our lives. Is this book God's Word or not? Now, if you've been around Stonebridge for a bit, you'll know that our answer to that question here is an unequivocal yes. It is God's Word. And we make no apologies for saying that out loud. Uh, we take the Bible pretty seriously here as a church, uh, both in our practice and also in our confession of faith. Uh, if you were to uh, look at Stonebridge's statement of faith, every church has kind of a statement of beliefs of what we believe about God and Scripture and so on. In our statement of faith, our, our denomination's statement of faith, the second article says this, we believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. So that is what we say on paper about what we think of the Bible. And, and that conviction, that belief, that affirmation is in line with historical Orthodox Christianity. Throughout the history of the church, this is what the church has believed about the Bible, all the way back through the Reformers, uh, all the way to the church fathers and, and to the apostles and the prophets. We believe what they believed about the Bible. But of course, there are other views about Scripture floating around in our world today, right? If you, if you find the religion section in Barnes & Noble and you start surveying the different books you might discover about the Bible, you're going to find a whole lot of different ideas on what this book is, how relevant it is, and so on and so forth. And it's okay to acknowledge that fact, to, to recognize there are lots of views and to understand what they are and wrestle with them and test them. Because if we're going to hang all our weight on this book... We ought to be convinced that it is what it says it is, that it's God's word. You know, some of the views you might encounter in the world, or, or maybe some of us are, are wrestling with right here. For some people, this book is nothing more than an ancient mythology. It, it, it's just a collection of, uh, it's sto of stories that were invented to explain the origin of the world or, or to uh, give authority to the moral codes of a particular culture. And so the only real value of the Bible for them would be history. Like it, it's a record of what a bunch of dead people once upon a time believed about God. So that's one view that's out there about the Bible. Uh, others would agree that the Bible is a mythology, but they would want to 
find something of value in it for us yet today, to find some modern value. If you can just kind of break through the mythology and, and, and get rid of the husks of all of the invented stuff, and then somewhere in there there's a kernel of truth good for the human soul. Uh, this, for instance, was the way that, that Thomas Jefferson approached the Bible. Uh, he literally took a penknife and cut out the parts of the Bible that, that didn't fit his worldview. Anything that was kind of not modern enough, like any supernatural, anything that was, was uh, miracles or anything about the judgment of God, cut that stuff out. And, and then what was left, he, he found a lot of value. And he said about what was left it, that it was the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. So he tried to basically rescue the Bible from the Bible, according to him, right? And, and while none of us are probably brazen enough to go get the scissors, uh, we kind of do the same thing sometimes today. It's very easy to pick and choose which parts of the Bible do I agree with or do I like and, and, and disregard or even fight against the parts that I don't like. We kind of treat it like a, a box of chocolates on Valentine's Day. You know, I'm going to pick the, the chewy centers and the caramels, the love of God and the mercy of God. I want all of those, and I'm going to leave the justice of God or the holiness of God in the box, you know, the disgusting chocolates, right, in our mind. And then yet there are still others who would tell you today that the entire box is poison, through and through. That for them, the Bible is at best a human invention meant to prop up weak and ignorant people, or at worst, an instrument of oppression. It's a weapon used by people with power to marginalize anyone who, who, who doesn't and to suppress any sort of opposition. And Thomas Paine, uh, in his book, The Age of Reason, wrote this about Scripture. He said, the most detestable wickedness, the most horrid cruelties, and the greatest miseries that have afflicted the human race have had their origin in this thing called revelation or revealed religion. That was his view of this book. But then there are those who throughout history have received this book and approached this book and honored and treated this book as nothing less than the very word of God. For example, Galileo, the, uh, the famous astronomer and mathematician, once said that God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine in his revealed word, the Bible. Sir Isaac Newton, uh, who discovered gravity and the laws of motion and uh, cursed us by inventing calculus, he wrote that uh, we account the scriptures of God to be the most sublime philosophy. I find more sure marks of authority in the Bible than in any profane history whatsoever. He wasn't exactly a stupid guy, right? Uh, John Locke, the, the philosopher and, and kind of father of what we call classical liberalism, which is not political but educational, uh, he wrote, let him study the Holy Scripture, especially the New Testament. Therein are contained the words of eternal life. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. 
Abraham Lincoln, uh, upon being presented with a, a Bible as a gift of appreciation from an African-American society in Baltimore in 1864, he replied, in regard to this great book, I have but to say, it is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good of the Savior of the world is communicated through this book. That's not bad company, right? That's not bad company. But, but the ultimate question is, what should we believe about the Bible? Like, it's interesting and helpful to know what others have believed about it. What should we believe about the Bible, about what this book is? And to begin to answer that question, we need to understand what this book tells us about itself. What does it say that it is? And to help us do that, we're looking specifically at 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21 this morning, the passage that Glenn read a little bit ago. So if you're not still there, go ahead and turn back to 2 Peter 1. Uh, It's on page 1018 if you're using the Pew Bible. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter uh, toward the end of his life. It's one of the last things he did. And And he wrote it not because he had some sort of new information he needed to pass on, like he'd forgotten something all this time. He wrote it, he says, to remind them of what they've already learned and believed. His goal in this letter was to remind the followers of Christ that he was investing in what they already had learned and believed. He says this in in 113 to 15, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that The putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Whenever somebody thinks that I, you know, I preach the same thing too often, I just go to this verse. Like, I just got to keep going over it, right? Uh, But this is his point. He, he, He wants to help them remember the things that they already know and believe about God, this knowledge of God that has been imparted to them through the scriptures, through what he calls God's very precious and great promises in verses three and four. He wants them to know that knowledge is meant to bear fruit in lives of character and obedience. Our, our knowledge of God is never just supposed to be you know, gaining information. I just know more things. That's not knowledge of God. Knowledge of God changes us. It ought to bear fruit in how we live and how we follow our Lord. He says in verse 8 that he doesn't want them to become ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ but rather, in 3.18, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he wants them to take the knowledge they have and put it into practice. Live like it's true. Let it change your life. But then the question becomes, how do we know it's true? How, How sure is this knowledge we've been given? How do we know it actually comes from God? And that's the question he's answering in our passage. How confident can we be that the knowledge of God that's been received is actually knowledge of God, that it actually comes from him? He wants to show his readers uh, that they should have confidence in what they've learned about God. And he offers two kinds of evidence about the knowledge that they've received and the fact that it is trustworthy and from the Lord. The first 
evidence he gives in verses 16 to 18 is eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. He wants them to pursue holiness, to remember these things because, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make this stuff up. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from, the God, from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice, this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. He's, he wants to guarantee them to, to bolster their confidence because the knowledge they've received comes from eyewitness testimony. What we're telling you about Jesus is not a myth. It's not a story somebody made up to trick you into doing something. And we know it is the true knowledge of God because we were there. That's what Peter's saying. We saw Jesus' glory revealed. We heard the voice of heaven give his affirmation of his son. Therefore, we must give our lives to him. This is Peter's argument. And of course, what he's talking about, the event he's describing, is what we call the transfiguration. It's this moment that you can read about in Matthew 17 or in Mark 9 or in Luke 9, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on this mountain, and, and his form is changed to reveal his heavenly glory, and the Father speaks his approval on his Son, and they witness the thing. They see it. And the fact that it wasn't just one witness, but it was three, is not just important for history, but for Israel's law, because something couldn't be verified apart from the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, so what they're saying, they can, they can believe it with confidence. The apostles were witnesses, and, and they witnessed more than just this. So there were three guys there who saw the transfiguration. There were hundreds of men and women who witnessed the resurrection, who saw Jesus in the flesh after he'd been buried in the ground for three days, dead, not just mostly dead, all dead, right? They saw the resurrected Christ and, and beheld the, the life that is in him. And, and keep in mind that these eyewitnesses, these eyewitnesses were both the authors and the sources of what became the New Testament. That's where we got this book from them, right? And we'll talk more about the reliability of the Bible in a couple of weeks. But the information we have in the New Testament about Jesus is not a cleverly devised myth. That's what Peter's telling us. It's verifiable history. Really, it is. When the Gospels and the letters were written down, they were written during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And you know what that means. It means if they, if they contained uh, inaccuracies, there were people around who were able to call it out. And yet the word stands. It stands. And it has stood ever since. So, so that's the first kind of evidence Peter is pointing his readers to, to have confidence that their knowledge of God is true, that, that it comes from eyewitness testimony. But there's a second evidence he also provides them uh, to convince them of the sufficiency of this knowledge. There's, there's eyewitness testimony, but if that doesn't convince you, 
He says then in verse 19, we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word. The prophetic word. And this is 19 to 21. And this is where we really learn what the Bible says about the Bible. And which means, if, if that's true, what God says about the Bible. So look again at, at verse 19. We have something more sure. The prophetic word, or as, as uh, an updated version of the ESV puts it, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Eyewitness testimony is great, but there's something even better, and that's the Scriptures. That's Peter's argument here. And when he talks about the prophetic word, he's not just talking about you know, the words of the prophets that were spoken in history. He's talking about the prophetic books contained in Scripture. He says, no prophecy of Scripture in verse 20. And so for the early church, that, that mostly meant the Old Testament. That was the main Bible that the early church had. Um, what we would call Israel's scriptures in the Old Testament. But already in that first generation of the church, the New Testament was beginning to be recognized as scripture as well. In, in Peter's own letter in chapter 3, he refers to Paul's writings as part of scripture. We see Paul doing something similar in 1 Timothy 5. He quotes Matthew as scripture. The scriptures are Peter's second kind of evidence, and he wants us to pay careful attention to them as to a, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. I don't know if you've imagined you know, trying to drive Iowa roads in the country after dark without your headlights on, like when you're, you're out of the town glow and there's no street lights, you're not going to make it very far, Right? I mean, at least they're straight, so you got that going for you. But if you can't see, there's just no light. Peter wants us to rely on the Bible the way we rely on our headlights in the middle of the country at night. This is your safety. This is your guide. This is your life. And the reason we should pay uh, careful attention to it is, as he tells us, because it's the very word of God. It's not just good advice to get you where you want to go anyway. It is the very word of God. That's his point. That's why he wants us to pay careful attention to it. It's not just a word of God. It doesn't just contain the word of God. It is the word of God. It is an inspired word. As verse 19 puts it, what the Bible tells us is more sure than Peter's own eyewitness testimony, or, or another way to translate again, Peter's testimony more fully confirms what the Old Testament scriptures have already revealed. Either way you handle that verse, it's making the same point, that the Bible is a trustworthy source for knowledge of God. We can depend on it. We can be confident that God is making himself known because in the Bible, God speaks. That's the conviction of Scripture. In the Bible, God speaks. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you want to put a a theological label on this, this is what we call the doctrine of inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration, which is not, you know, does not mean that the Bible's inspiring the way like a Hallmark card might be inspiring, right? Uh, Nor does it mean that the authors were inspired the way that an artist might be inspired by a beautiful sunset. This is talking about something divine. The, The doctrine of inspiration, what we mean by that is that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. And so this book came into being by the very breath of God. You think of uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired and useful for teaching and correcting and uh, reproof, for training in righteousness. and, And this idea that That what we have here is nothing less than the Word of God. Uh, That's reinforced throughout the book itself and what it claims of itself. You can think of the almost thousand or so references in the Old Testament of thus says the Lord or the Word of the Lord came and so on. This, that's what Jesus believed about the Bible. When you look at Matthew 15 or at Mark 7, when Jesus talks about the Old Testament scriptures, he calls them the word of God, not just the words of men, the word of God. In the Bible, God speaks. And it's not just even the the message that's in the Bible, but the very words and sentences that communicate that message. That's the word of God as well. Every jot and tittle, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 5. This book is nothing less than the very Word of God. And so how does that work? You know, because when I look at chapter 1, verse 1, it kind of looks like Peter's the author of 2 Peter. How how can God be the author and Peter be the author at the same time? How, How does inspiration work? Well, Peter actually answers the question for us in verse 21. Men spoke from God. So yes, there were human authors involved using human words, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is God's divine word written in human words through human authors, around 40 or so of them. Uh, Kings and and priests and and prophets and poets and historians and doctors and tax collectors and, and, and apostles all writing in three different languages on three different continents over the course of about 1,500 years, all writing one word of God. And some of these authors heard directly from God, the way you kind of imagine it, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. They have a vision. God tells them something. They wrote it down. Some of these authors wrote out of their own pain and experiences. Some of them uh, used earlier writings as sources. You can look at the Gospels and you can see how there's some interdependence. Or even the book of Joshua talks about, or, or the book of Judges talks about earlier writings and so on and so forth. Some of them did research, like Luke. He interviewed eyewitnesses as he was compiling his account of what happened. But all of them, All of them were carried along by the Holy Spirit 
so that whether they're using sources or hearing a voice or, what, or seeing a vision or just doing their own study, whatever they wrote, they're carried along by the Holy Spirit so that whatever they wrote is exactly what God wanted them to write in order to reveal himself to us. That's the doctrine of inspiration. That's what the Bible tells us about the Bible, that it is an inspired word, nothing less than the very word of God. Now, we're going to continue to think together about this the next few weeks. We're going to look at the authority of Scripture next Sunday and the reliability of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. But as we, as we kind of draw to a close this morning, I want us to think, just to begin to think about the implications of if this book really is what it says it is. If this is God's word, then what? So just a few implications and applications of our response to the scriptures. First, if, if this book is the word of God, it means that it's actually possible to know God. That's kind of a big deal, right? That, that if this book is the word of God, it's actually possible to know God. We are not left to ourselves and our own intelligence or creativity or devices to figure him out. You know, we don't have to guess at who he is or what he's like or what he's done or is doing or will do because he just told us. He comes out and tells us who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. It's actually possible to know God, not because we're so clever, but because he has made himself known through his inspired word. That's the first implication. Second, if this book is God's word, then, then Peter's right. We are wise to pay careful attention to it as to a lamp shining in the darkness. If the Bible is God's word, our greatest need in life and our greatest act of love should be to listen carefully to what he says. I mean, we all know the, the experience of um, trying to talk to someone who's not actually listening to us, right? Your spouse is trying to have a conversation with you and you're buried in your phone or your newspaper. I see the looks. People are like making eye contact with each other. Or, or you're trying to get your kids' attention. You're trying to tell them something, and you have to say it 15 times before they realize that you're actually talking to them. We all know how rude and unloving that experience is. So imagine what it's like for God, having gone to incredible lengths to inspire his word over the course of two millennia through all these different authors, and then to protect and preserve his word for another two millennia, only to have us ignore it. What does that say about our heart, our affection, our love? If we love God, we'll listen when he speaks. We'll make a priority of being students of his word because in this book, God is always speaking. He's always speaking. And essential to being those good listeners is, is prioritizing the reading and teaching of this book, both in our personal lives, in our homes, in our church. It's the reason that we teach and study the Bible in every ministry of this church. Like, it is a priority because God's speaking. 
He's, he's speaking here. We need to make it a priority. It's the, it's the reason that when we open the Bible on Sunday mornings, uh, that, that we preach the scriptures and not just some sort of kind of inspirational talk loosely based on the Bible. A lot of preaching today can kind of feel a little bit like that, but here's the deal. You don't need that. You certainly don't need it from me. I don't have that much to offer. What you need is a word from God, which means this must be the focus of our time. It has to be, because what he says is what matters, not what I say. It's also the reason that, that we typically preach through whole books of the Bible. Because what God has given us is not a collection of stories or examples or doctrines or principles. He's given us whole stories, whole letters, whole books, whole poems and songs. And, and we hear his voice more clearly when we work through them the way he gave them to us, right? In, in their own context. And so we prioritize working through the Bible in the way the Bible has come to us from God. But it's also the reason, this importance of loving God by listening to him, is also the reason that we encourage our, our church family to not just open this book for a few minutes on Sunday morning, but to let it be a regular centerpiece of your personal lives, of your family. And, and, and that can feel like an overwhelming weight for some of us. If this book feels like new and foreign and I don't know what to do, and we'd love to work with you on, on learning how to read it. But, it. but it's not meant to be a burden. Think of it more like breakfast or lunch. It's a meal. This is for our sustenance. Uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need this for life. And that can take all sorts of shapes, right? Some, some, uh, sometimes we, we've grown up in contexts where uh, Bible reading has to look like a very rigid particular plan. Like if you're not spending 25 minutes in the Word every day, do you even love Jesus, right? And, and we could feel this guilt if I'm not doing it the way this person's doing it. I want to relieve you of that guilt. The point is... Am I spending meaningful time with God in his word regularly? And that can look all sorts of different ways. That might be reading a psalm with your family before dinner. It might be doing devotions with your kids before bed. It might be memorizing a verse or, 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 or different passages of scripture, listening to the Bible through a podcast or something like that. That's my, I'm trying that out this year. There's a, a professor, I want to say Robert Smith is his name. Um, man, I love hearing this guy read the Bible. It's so great. He just, it slows me down, and he just is walking me through. It's this daily podcast of just kind of reading through Scripture. It's wonderful. There's lots of different ways to spend time with God and His Word. The question is, are you doing something meaningful with that, right? I always tell people, because invariably with the new year, everybody's looking at new Bible reading plans, and, and some people are having, you know, guilt because I didn't finish last time I started and so on. The best Bible reading plan is the one you'll actually use, right? Don't play the comparison game. Don't overthink it. Don't, which one will you actually use? Do that one, right? So, but we need to spend time with God in his word. If this is truly the word of God, we need to listen. But then third, and the last point here, you're not really paying careful attention uh, unless you're doing something with what you heard. Right? How many of us uh, 
You know, if your boss or your teacher tells you something and you hear the words, but you don't actually do anything, have you really listened, right? And so we want to honor God, not by just letting the words go through our brain, but by letting the words land on us in the way they were intended to have their effect through obedience, through transformation, through changed lives. Peter wants us to pay careful attention to the word so that our knowledge of God does not become ineffective or unfruitful, but so that it bears fruit in holiness and obedience. And so, as we, again, put it in our doctrinal statement, if the Bible is God's word, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. The book of James uh, puts it this way, be doers of the word and not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. And, and that begins by believing the Bible, and specifically believing in Jesus. Like if you want to put the Bible into practice, start by, ta- by trusting the main point of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Like he's the centerpiece of the whole thing. He says himself in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. You want life from the word, go to Jesus. That's the main point. In fact, it's pretty impossible to put anything else in the Bible into practice if you don't first have faith in Jesus. Again, this is not just good advice for an easier life. This is the word of life through Christ, who is life. And you're not going to have the strength to obey without the presence of the Spirit through faith in Jesus. So he's the main application. And if that's new to you, I would love to visit after the service. Who is this Jesus? What does the Bible tell us about him? That's the, the most important application of Scripture we can make. But But Putting it into practice also means becoming more and more like Jesus as we grow in him. God's word transforms our lives as the spirit applies it to our hearts such that we love righteousness more and more and we hate sin more and more. It shapes how we treat each other. Are we loving the way that we've been loved or are we loving in a way that we're actually using others and and so on? It, It should shape our view of morality of all the controversies today, God says something about those things. It should shape our priorities and our values, our leadership, our, the way that we operate as a church and, 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 and seek to serve and love others. All of these things ought to flow from our obedience to Scripture, which doesn't mean that we've got everything figured out or nothing new to learn. Uh, reading the Bible is a lifelong journey. Learning the scriptures is a lifelong journey. Uh, We we have much to learn and some things to unlearn and relearn, right? And we won't do that unless we're in this book. The goal is not to master the Bible, but to be mastered by it and to know the master of it. That is our goal with scripture. Because in this book, God speaks. It is nothing less than the word of God. Brothers and sisters, in Scripture, we have something more sure. 
we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as to a light shining in a dark place. Knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is the precious gift that you hold in your hand. These are not just idle words. These are your life. And my prayer for us is that we would grow in our affection and our value, our understanding and our obedience to God's word as we seek to grow in our love and our devotion and our obedience to God himself. Because in the Bible, God speaks. Let's pray and ask him to do it. Gracious Father, God, we praise you that you have not left us in a dark place with no light. You have not left us to figure you out on our own or to find our way on our own. You have given us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You have made yourself known through your scriptures. Lord, give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, and hearts ready to be changed by the truth of your scripture. Let us hang on your words and let us hold fast to them as we live them out and give them out in joyful obedience to Christ. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.